Grab your Bibles, if you will, and, and um, open with me to the book of Job, and we'll continue our study of that book. You follow as I read, beginning uh, in chapter 16, at verse 9. He has torn me in his wrath and hated me. He has gnashed his teeth at me. My adversary sharpens his eyes against me. Men have gaped at me with their mouth. They have struck me insolently on the cheek. They mass themselves together against me. God gives me up to the ungodly and casts me into the hands of the wicked. I was at ease, and he broke me apart. He seized me by the neck and dashed me to pieces. He set me up as his target. His archers surrounded, surround me. He slashes open my kidneys and does not spare. He pours out my gall on the ground. He breaks me with breach upon breach. He runs upon me like a warrior. I have sewed sackcloth upon my skin and I have, and have laid my strength in the dust. My face is red with weeping and on my eyelids is deep darkness, although there is no violence in my hands and my prayer is pure. O earth, cover not my blood and let me cry, let my cry find no resting place. Even now, behold, my witness in heaven is in heaven and he who testifies for me is on high. My friends scorn me, my eye pours out tears to God, that he would argue the case of a man with God as a son of man does with his neighbor. For when a few years have come, I shall go the way from which I shall not return. And then chapter 19, just a couple of four verses, beginning in verse 9. He has stripped from me my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side. And I am gone, and my hope has he pulled up like a tree. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. His troops come on together. They have cast up their siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God... That endures forever. Gang, the first thing that you need to know this morning is that the speaker in both of these passages, both of these chapters, is Job. The reason I tell you that is because you know that there are other speakers in the book of Job. Uh, His three counselors, his three friends. And so much of what those three counselors of his say is wrong. But this is not one of those three counselors that are speaking here. This is Job. And so much, not all, but so much of what Job says is right. And so we can listen with with less defensiveness. We can let down our guard just a little bit more, knowing that it's Job who is speaking in this passage. Secondly, um, gang, I I keep reminding you of this, but, um, uh, you know, when when I opened this series, several... Oh, months ago or weeks ago, I told you that you were, it's a challenge. This book is a challenge, guys. This is not easy stuff. And I said you were going to have to gird up the loins of your mind. Well, this morning, um, if you'll stay with me, I want to take you someplace, but it's not going to be easy to get there. But if you are looking for some help with suffering, then I may have something for you. So stay with me. 
Guys, one of my goals in this series on the book of Job has been and continues to be to point out to you that Job is a type of Christ. However, what dominates our attention um, when we read the book of Job is not Job as a Christ type, but Job as a sufferer. Well, what captivates us is this riddle of righteous, redemptive suffering. Um, it, when, when you're not suffering, when, when, when life is going well for you, then suffering is not much more than an academic puzzle. But when one, when suffering strikes, it becomes one of life's defining moments. All of our energies are consumed in trying to figure out what's happening to me and how I might cope with it. Somebody, I, I don't know who, but somebody said it like this. When life is good, we have no questions. But when life goes bad, we have no answers. The reason that the book of Job, I think, is so intriguing to to so many of us is because it offers us a bit of help when it comes to this subject of suffering. And we'll take whatever we can get, that is, in terms of help. But guys, we are so consumed by our pain, and that I understand, but we are, we are so consumed by our pain that we may be missing one of, if not the, dominant themes in the book of Job. And that's what I want to explain and try to point out to you this morning. That dominant theme that we may be missing, missing it because we are so consumed with our pain that we, are, we, we miss something that, that, I, that I think is glaring about the book. Gang, the more you delve into this book of Job, especially the speeches of Job, the more you begin to hear language of crucifixion, you you begin to realize that that something else is going going, going on inside this book. It's not just a book about suffering. The book contains language that smells of Good Friday. And it, and it has a, a pungent scent of righteous blood mixed throughout the entire book. And it's not only in these two chapters, chapter 16 and chapter 19. You can find it in elsewhere in the speeches of Job. But, but particularly here, that that language of crucifixion. For example, guys, the picture that anyone gets when you're reading the book of Job, from the very opening gun, from from the very beginning of the book in chapters 1 and 2 and onward, is a picture 
of a righteous man who is suffering for no real reason that is found in him. Um, he is, in essence, Job is, an innocent sufferer. Gang, that's Job's point throughout the entire book as he is forced to, to defend himself in front of those three friends who cannot fathom the idea of, uh, of an innocent sufferer. The idea that somebody would be suffering for reasons that are not found in him is, is just, <clears throat> it's unthinkable in the life of, uh, of Job's three friends. Um, but for Job, the idea of an innocent sufferer is very real because he considers himself to be an inner, an innocent sufferer, which may have been the thing that, that prompted thoughts in him that I'm going to try to point out to you this morning. So guys, all I'm trying to say is this. Probably the whole backdrop of the entire book of Job is that of an innocent sufferer. Does that ring a bell? Does that not sound like Good Friday to you? Gang, we know, of course, that, that the only one in whom was found no real reason, no real basis for, suffer, for suffering, was, was Jesus Christ. Um, but that whole innocent suffer motif, which is found throughout the book, that whole, that whole thing that's going on there, um, Job is saying something. There is, there's more in this book than just how I might deal with my suffering. That whole idea of an innocent sufferer is so reminiscent of Calvary. And, and why this aroma of crucifixion is found all through this book is because of this innocent Sufferer motif. Are you still with me? Gang, because there's so much emphasis upon suffering when there's no grounds for it, while you read the book, one of your eyes keeps drifting towards Jesus Christ. And, and, you, and you begin to, 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 to wonder that maybe Job is onto something. Maybe, maybe he's saying something. Maybe he's giving us, maybe he's giving us more than just data about how we might suffer well. But guys, <clears throat> some of the language that, that I'm going to point out to you this morning is, is over the top. Um, and, and my, my point is that some of this language here is so drastic that at least we've got to conclude that God the Holy Spirit must have intended for us to think of Christ while we're reading it. Um, when I'm not real sure that Job even fully understood what he was writing. He may have. But gang, uh, this language 
that Job uses here has got more than one purpose to it. There's more than one, there's more than just trying to help us deal with our pain in this language. And before I show it to you, I want to give you an example of the kind of thing that goes on that I, that I want to, I want to show you in Job, but it goes on elsewhere in scripture. Alright? Now, keep your finger in Job 16 and see if you can find real fast Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is just a few pages in front of where you are. But as you're finding it, I want to quote the first line of Psalm 22. Are you ready? It goes like this. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, gang, who wrote that? David wrote it. When did he write it? Well, he, he wrote it about, oh, a thousand years or so before the birth of Jesus Christ. But when I read it to you, who do you think of? When I say this, my God, my God, why hast thou forced, who do you think of? Yeah. Now, keep looking at the psalm. Look at verses 14 through 18. I'm going to read these. We're still in Psalm 22. <clears throat> I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now, guys, again, who wrote that? Well, David wrote it. But here's the point, ladies and gentlemen. None of that ever happened to David. Look at that. They have pierced my hands and feet in verse 16. None of that happened to David. So, who must be in view? Here, in Psalm 22. Guys, David, whatever his suffering was, was moved by the Holy Spirit to use language that points us to a future sufferer. Um, and in his so doing, David takes his suffering and sets it in the context of Christ's suffering. Now, gang, if I haven't lost you yet, I'm saying to you that Job does the same thing. Go back to Job 16. And let me show you this over-the-top language that I, I've alluded to. Um, it's in chapter 16, beginning at verse 10. We'll, we'll look at verse 12 and 13 first. I was at ease, and he broke me apart. He seized me by the neck and dashed me to pieces. He set me up as his target. His archers surrounded me. He slashes to open my kidneys and does not spare it. He pours out my gall on the ground. Now, guys, in those two verses, God is portrayed... As an archer. 
And Job has a target on his back. And God seems to be getting his kicks by slashing him open. Gang, my gall pours out on the ground. That's very drastic language. But none of that happened to Job, at least literally. Look at um, look at verse 10. I was at ease and he broke me apart. He seized me by the neck and dashed me to pieces. Oh, excuse me, that's still verse 10. Men have gaped at me with their mouth. They have struck me insolently on the cheek. They massed themselves together against me. Guys, nobody ever hit Job. That, that's language that's pointing us to something. Um, if you've still got your Bibles open, chapter 19, verse 11. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as an adversary. Verse 14. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. Who does that make you think of? Guys, go back to chapter 16. One more. Because this is the, it's the worst of them all. Verse 11. God gives me up to the ungodly. Or, my God, my God. Why hast thou forsaken me? Folks, all Christian theology is basically an attempt to answer that question. Why did God forsake his son? And 3,000 years before that ever happened, Job points us to it. Okay, Jimmy, you have bored me to tears. So what? Gang, the Holy Spirit who inspired this book through this author Job, and again, I'm I'm not sure that Job understood all of what he was saying. Job is giving, or the Holy Spirit through Job is giving us a lesson as to how we can deal with our suffering. And here's the lesson. Guys, part of the way that I must deal with my suffering is to put it into the context of Christ's suffering. That's what you see David doing in Psalm 22. That's what you see going on here In Job 16, my Savior, our Savior, Jesus Christ, was an innocent sufferer. Only Christianity offers a Savior who has been hated and beaten and betrayed and killed. Stay with me. I want to read you something. This comes out of a John Stott book, and it's it's somewhat lengthy, guys. And I know you don't like to be read to, but I think this thing will I think this thing will catch you about the fourth sentence. So let me read it to you. It's uh, it's by Edward Shalito. Um, stay tuned. It's called the Long Silence. At the end of time, billions of people were scattered on a great plain before God's throne. Most shrank back from the brilliant light before them. 
But some groups near the front talked heatedly, not with cringing shame, but with belligerence. Can God judge us? How can he know about suffering? Snapped a pert young brunette. She ripped open a sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endured terror and beatings and torture and death. In another group, a Negro boy lowered his collar. What about this, he demanded, showing an ugly rope burn, lynched for no crime but being black. In another crowd, a pregnant schoolgirl with sullen eyes. Why should I suffer, she murmured. It wasn't my fault. Far out across the plain, there were hundreds of such groups. Each had a complaint against God for the evil and suffering he permitted in his world. How lucky God was was to live in heaven where all was sweetness and light, where there was no weeping or fear or hunger or hatred. What did God know of all that man had been forced to endure in this world? For God leads a pretty sheltered life, they said. So each of these groups sent forth their leader, chosen because he had suffered the most. A Jew, a Negro, a person from Hiroshima, a horribly deformed arthritic, a thalidomide child. In the center of the plain, they consulted with each other. At last, they were ready to present their case. It was rather clever. Before God could be qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they had endured. Their decision was that God should be sentenced to live on earth as a man. Let him be born a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted. Give him a work so difficult that even his family will think him out of his mind when he tries to do it. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges, be tried by a a prejudiced jury, and convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured. At the last, at the last, said another, let him see what it means to be terribly alone. Then let him die. Let him die so that there can be no doubt that he died. Let there be a great host of witnesses to verify it. As each leader announced his portion of the sentence, loud murmurs of approval went up from the throng of people assembled. And when the last had finished pronouncing sentence, there was a long silence. No one uttered another word. No one moved. For suddenly, all knew that God had already served his sentence. You see, ladies and gentlemen, for God, suffering is not an academic puzzle. I'm speaking to you about dealing with our own suffering by putting it into the context of Christ's suffering, ladies and gentlemen. That's one of the solutions of facing our own. But we can't stop simply with here. Gang, that suffering on the part of Jesus Christ was designed, was necessary to pay for sin. My sin. Gang, so much of our suffering has been brought on by our own sin. I'm the one that flirted too much and ended up in an illicit relationship. I'm the one that drank way too much and got myself in a big mess 
I'm the one that lied. And now, I, I, I'm, I'm in a, I'm in a heck of a, of a pickle. Guys, there's, one thing we can say at least, if you want to reduce your suffering, reduce your sin. But that's not to say that God won't ask us, as He asked Job, to bear something that is completely unrelated to our sin. But often our foolishness is what causes our pain, our trifling with our souls, my neglect of my soul, my ho-hum attitude about spiritual things. Gang, Jesus Christ is the only innocent sufferer. And the more I know about his suffering and his cross, the more my suffering is put into context. We have to learn in the midst of our suffering to climb a hill called Calvary. And from that vantage point, survey all of life's tragedies. The cross does not solve the problem of suffering. But it does supply the essential perspective from which to look at it. That's the lesson, ladies and gentlemen. What Job does, what David does, is what we have to do in the midst of our own sorrow and pain. We have to put it into the context of the suffering of the only innocent sufferer that ever lived. Gang, we, we, we 21st century Christians, I think we think that we know all there is to know about the cross. And I'm telling you, I don't, I don't think we do. I'm not, I'm not talking about, do you know all the details? I'm, I'm, I want to know this. Do you know what I mean when I say something about an innocent sufferer? Ladies and gentlemen, most of you have been bored to tears for the last 20 minutes and don't even know what the innocent sufferer I'm talking about. Gang, do you understand the part about the guiltless dying in the place of the guilty and the guilty is me? Gang, Calvin called the cross, he said it was the theater of the cross. Christ is to us just what his cross is to us, ladies and gentlemen. We, We do not understand Christ until we understand his cross. The only authentic Jesus is the Jesus who died on a cross. The cross transforms everything, including my suffering. Jesus didn't die as a martyr. It was a deliberate choice because there was no other way to save somebody as wicked as I am. My sin was so ugly that he had to die. And his love was so deep that he was willing to die. 
Guys, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, knowing that the church, in, in, in the church's zeal to be relevant and exciting, that the cross would somehow get muscled to the, to the margins of the ministry. And let me tell you one of the consequences of doing that. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago I told you about there's two things in suffering that we face, the pain and the shock? And I said in the pain we, we tend to medicate it, but it's the shock of the suffering that seems to be the hardest thing to take. Guys, if you move the cross of Jesus Christ to the margins of, of your life, then the minute you taste a, get a taste of pain, It'll overwhelm you. <clears throat> I'll tell you a story, and I'm not even sure this is a, a good illustration, but I think it does illustrate, at least in a tiny way, what I'm trying to say. Years ago, um, in, in the, when I got out of seminary in 75, the first ministry that, that we had was in Ocala, Florida. It was ten, we, we stayed there 10 years and had a wonderfully fruitful nine and a half years. It was just the last six months that almost killed us. But... Um, <clears throat> We had a youth ministry down there that was second to none. It was called the Thursday Nighter. And I, it was the hottest thing in the city. I mean, it was packed on Thursday nights. It was, it was only in the summer. But I mean, it, we, we were having 400 kids in, in a church of 200. And um, it, it was just blowing and going. And one of the kids that I, um, that I drew very close to was a, was a very talented young man. He was a he was a he was he was a gifted guitarist. He was a gifted he was a leader type guy, and I, and I invested a whole lot of life in him. <clears throat> On an occasion, this young man took an opportunity to really throw me under the bus. Um, I called it, and maybe maybe it was a little bit dramatic back then. I, I called it being betrayed. Betrayed. And I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, I was overcome with the fact that I that somebody would betray me. And I remember, I had a friend. His name was George. And I was expressing all my shock over being betrayed to George. And George said this. Why are you so surprised? If you're going to follow Jesus Christ, you're going to be betrayed. He was. That's what I mean by setting our pain into the context of Christ's suffering. He was the only innocent sufferer. Of course, if I'm going to be like him, I'm going to taste some of the things that he tasted. Gang, one of the reasons I'm convinced behind our suffering is that God refuses to allow us to forget 
the cross. And the one thing that so efficiently takes us back there to the cross is pain. All of a sudden, as a result of my pain, I want somebody to pray with me. Now, I'm wondering about eternal matters. Because, ladies and gentlemen, God refuses to allow us to forget that there was an innocent sufferer. And it isn't me. i got one more thing to do and then I'm done. In terms of this over-the-top language on the part of Job, ladies and gentlemen, there's one more thing here that is, that is glorious. It's, it's in verses 19 through 21. Actually, I'm going to skip verse 20 because I think it's, it's just a, an aside. I'm going to just read you verses 19 and 21. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high, that he would argue the case of a man with God as a son of man does with his neighbor. Again, Job, in the midst of this cross-fixated language of his, something emerges in in the midst of his thinking. It's a witness, verse 19. It's my witness. The matter of, of Job's case is going to be settled by my witness in heaven. That witness in heaven is going to argue Job's case before God. Who that is... Job doesn't know. But we do. All Job knows is that the only hope he has is to be found in that witness pleading his case before God in heaven. And so in the midst of all this crucifixion language, Job sees something. Job sees someone. And ladies and gentlemen, through eyes that have been trained by the New Testament, I know who he saw. I'll tell you who he saw. He saw Christ Jesus. Guys, I I, I can't answer all the questions about suffering. I can't even answer all of my questions about suffering. But I can tell you this. There is a witness. There, there There is an 
advocate. Someone about whom Job could only speculate. But we know who he is. And it's that witness that testifies for me before God. He argues my case. And the essence of his argument has to do with a cross. A cross on which the guiltless died. The innocent sufferer. He died for the guilty. And that would be me. So ladies and gentlemen, not only is my eternity at stake by the wit- based on the witness of this advocate, but so is the way that I face my own suffering. I take it. I set it into the context of the innocent sufferer, knowing he pleads my case in heaven before God. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the gospel brought to you courtesy of Job. Our Father, I pray that you will allow us to see that Job is onto something. And would you, um, would you take us to the same place that you were taking him? That we would conclude in the midst of our own pain that there is in heaven for us a witness, one pleading our case before God. And for those, O oh God, who, have not, who do not have that advocate, who, who are here today and have no such advocate for their souls, would you cause them to see that their only hope is to be found in Christ and Him crucified? He, He is our advocate. And we glory in Him all over again this morning. We make our prayer, of course, in Jesus' name.